0: I'm declaring a public health emergency of international concern over the global outbreak of novel coronavirus. The director general of the World Health Organization making clear how serious the spread of the coronavirus is. A virus that comes from the same family as the common cold, but which is proving extremely serious. Four more confirmed cases of the coronavirus have been discovered. There are now 440 confirmed cases. Well, the outbreak started in Wuhan.
1: The virus can be spread through human contact.
2: I'm in central China where a deadly new strain of coronavirus has emerged. The outbreak has sparked memories of the SARS virus, which also came from China, which killed nearly 800 people worldwide.
0: And now, cases have been confirmed in the UK.
2: Good evening. We start tonight with the latest on the virus outbreak in China. Hundreds of British citizens waiting to be flown home from the worst affected region will be put in quarantine for two weeks on their return to the UK.
1: But fears around contagious viruses that spread quickly, with often devastating effects, are not the product of a modern age, despite their use in contemporary fiction and film.
0: The bubonic plague, dubbed the Black Death, was one of the most feared diseases of the 14th century. Spread by rats, it killed up to half of the population of some countries. What was particularly frightening was the victims could go from good health to death in a matter of hours. While the last big outbreak of plague in the UK was in 1665, when a quarter of London's population died, this was not the end of pandemics.
1: Few people remember the Spanish flu, a deadly pandemic that hit the world in 1918 and killed up to 100 million. But to maintain morale in wartime, censors minimise the early reports of death and illness. So how does this latest scare around a much feared virus fit into what we know about pandemics and how we react to unseen threats? Welcome to The Know How, a podcast aimed at bringing academics and professionals together to dissect the pressing matters of today. I'm Dr. Glenda Cooper,
0: and I'm Dr. Lindsay Blumel. Today we are joined by medical historian Dr. Mark Honigsbaum, who has written a series of books on the history of pandemics. These include Living with Enza, The Forgotten Story of Britain and the Great Flu Pandemic of 1918, and A History of the Great Influenza Pandemic's Death, Panic and Hysteria, 1830 to 1920. He looks at how we've dealt with pandemics over the years, how the media have reported them, and what cultural effects they have. We begin by asking to explain what the coronavirus is.
2: So uh, the coronavirus um, actually belongs to the same family as the common cold virus, interestingly enough. Um, and for many years, it was considered the Cinderella of the virus world because everyone had known about the common cold for ages, wasn't very interesting, to the microbiologist. Then that all changed in 2002, 2003, when we had the SARS outbreak um, in China into Hong Kong. And everyone scrambled to try and work out what was causing it. And when they eventually tracked it down, they discovered it was a new type of coronavirus. Um, Never seen before. That virus, that coronavirus in 2002, was traced to um, an animal market. um, And they isolated it from civet cats, which are an exotic game animal uh, much prized in Chinese cuisine. And it now appears that the new coronavirus, it's its similar to the SARS virus, but, you know, there's some genetic diversity. Uh, and they've tracked that down to, it's most closely related to a similar virus found in snakes and bats.
1: Now, is there uh, something here about the sort of the exo- exoticism, the kind of the animal link that is making us more scared about this virus?
2: I do think it plays into these kind of kind of deep, almost sort of ancestral fears of, you know, unknown pathogens that might reside in the animal kingdom. You know, we're humans, right? So we're animals, but we don't... We consider ourselves different. There's a separation. Uh, and It's quite atavistic, that sort of idea that we're not actually that far removed.
1: No, the idea of jumping mm. the species barrier yes. is um, is yeah. is not the stuff of fiction no. as it might have been. Could you... Uh, in, a, in very simple terms, talk us through what is the, the media narrative when there is um, a scare around a virus like this?
2: The typical narrative starts with the idea of patient zero, doesn't it? Uh, we, we like to think that the outbreak could be traced to a specific event or time or place. Uh, I mean, actually, um, when these outbreaks are over um, and the scientists uh, study it, what you often find is that there isn't a single patient zero. You know, there's also the idea that some people um, transmit these viruses more yeah. efficiently than the other. You may have heard the phrase super spreaders, right? No,
1: what's, what's <laughs> a super spreader?
2: Well, uh, so typically a virus will affect uh, most people it comes into contact, but some might have very mild illness. Some might be just asymptomatic. They might even not, they might not know that they're infected. But some people um, get very seriously ill. And it seems that they, they transmit the virus more efficiently. And we saw this very clearly in 2003 when SARS started to take off in Hong Kong. The challenge facing um, clinicians on the front line is to quickly identify the really infectious patients and isolate them before they infect too many other people.
1: You have this idea of, as you say, these myths around patient zero, the, um, the fears around super spreaders. What role do the media play in something like the right. coronavirus?
2: There will always be papers or outlets who, for want of a better word, uh, like to hype uh, the pandemic. So uh, without naming any names, um, uh, last week when we, st- we first started to get big headlines about it, some papers splashed with a headline, killer virus, right? Even though at that point, uh, I think only 41 people in China were dead. I mean, by definition, all viruses are killers. (laughs) Okay, I mean, influenza kills uh, 12,000 people every year, in a bad year anyway, in the UK. Uh, I don't think that language is helpful because it just um, exaggerates the threat. Um, We do need to take these things seriously, though. And um, I think that too often the media is blamed uh, for simply repeating or, or amplifying messages that start with science and public health. So After a, all, yeah, go on.
1: There's a responsibility for the scientists then about the messages that they're putting out.
2: You know, the World Health Organization, they're in a difficult place. If they don't press the alarm bell early enough, they can be criticised afterwards, as we saw in 2014 when the Ebola outbreak started in a remote forested area of Guinea. And a spokesman at the WHO described it as a localised event. Well, that localized event eventually <laughs> spread throughout West Africa, infected people in Freetown, Monrovia. It hopped on a plane to Dallas where somebody introduced it to a hospital in Dallas. Uh, and in all, the upshot was we had to uh, expend billions of dollars on mobilizing this huge medical humanitarian response. Um, the other extreme, though, um, sometimes uh, you can press the pandemic alarm button when really uh, it's not warranted. or So that we saw that in 2009. I don't know if you remember swine flu. And what happened there was the WHO very quickly said, we believe this is a pandemic virus, and they triggered the whole alert system, declared it um, a public health emergency. But in the end, swine flu, although it was a pandemic virus, as you would define it um, on scientific grounds, it didn't turn out to be very severe. So in that case, the WHO uh, was accused of overreacting. And Crying Wolf, right? Yeah. Um, And there were lots of conspiracy theories you may remember because who benefited from, you know, qui bono vaccine companies. It was like a windfall for them because uh, all these contracts have been set up for them to produce pandemic vaccines. So it's very difficult to know. I think one has to be cautious.
1: Yeah. Well... That then um, leads me neatly into something that I'd really like to ask you about. We're, we're looking at sort of coronavirus in 2020. But obviously, killer viruses, to, yeah. <laughs> to coin a phrase, pandemics are nothing new. You referred back to the 1890s and, of course, the Spanish flu yes. um, epidemic of 1918. How do these viruses and the way that we talk about them, the sort of um, the anxiety about them, compare to the information that people had then and the kind of the, the fear that was triggered?
2: So that's a really great question. Um, so, you know, so besides sort of uh, studying medical history, obviously I, I lecture and teach um, uh, on the history of journalism here. And one of the things that was striking in 1918 when the Spanish flu um, Emerged is it didn't spark major headlines, actually. One reason for that was because, um, you know, Britain, France, the Allied powers were at war. And um, newspaper barons like Alfred Harmsworth, um, who owned uh, 40% of the British press, the Daily Mail, the Times, you know, there was a kind of voluntary self censorship to dampen any news that might be seen to undermine civilian morale uh, and to sort of work against the war effort. But there was another reason why it didn't spark many headlines at the time. So, But um, if you go back and look at the newspapers, if you look at the Times, yeah. um, there wasn't a huge amount of amplification in the news pages. But if you turn to the obituary columns and you see that su- suddenly, instead of a roll call of the dead of Ypres on the battlefields of World War One, it's the flu dead who are starting to sort of dominate the obituaries.
1: So... I mean, this was obviously in 1918, as you say, a particular um, time because of the war. Are there any other sort of pandemics that we can look back in the sort of 20th century and mm-hmm. see how they compare to, say, coronavirus now?
2: Well, I mean, so we've talked a little bit about Ebola. Yeah. I think most listeners will remember that. That, that was a kind of a big panic, flu was. But I think the best example of... When we were really concerned it was, it was really a domestic threat was the hiv AIDS pandemic of the 1980s. You, you must yeah. remember, as I do, those alarming uh, adverts yeah. paid by the government of the falling tombstones mm-hmm. so I think that was that was actually um, that was a good example of how uh, public health messaging can communicate things in a way that might be alarming but uh, alarm with a purpose, and the media. Didn't come out that well from it. So if you go back and look at the way it was covered in America by network news anchors, uh, they were very. A lot of the early coverage sort of tracked down, you know, the supposed patient zero mm. of the outbreak, this Canadian airline steward called Guyton Dugas, and um, you know they called it the gay plague. That's how they build it on the nightly news.
1: I mean, you, you mentioned the word plague, and that seems to be something that is coming up. In um, your sort of research, time and time mm. again, when we're talking about the plague, what what is the emphasis? What, what what is that playing into in our you know in our fears? If we're talking about plagues,
2: well, I, I think actually, um, so I've, I've brought along a copy of Albert Camus' The Plague because you know a lot of people may not know about the Spanish flu or some of the, these more exotic outbreaks I've been talking about. But everyone's heard of the Black Death, right? Uh, everyone's studied it or seen a film about it. Um, and this fear of plague really goes back to ancient times. The plague of Athens is the first plague text we have describing an outbreak you know, yeah. in this closed community. Um, and I think it really is this idea of contagion, something that spreads through bodily fluids. It, as I say, it just really brings up these deep kind of atavistic fears. What I like about Albert Camus' handling of it is he really captures the sort of the human impact uh, yeah. and the way that different individuals respond in those situations of stress. You know? S- yeah. Could you give
1: an example of um, what's what's so striking about it?
2: Uh, about Camus? Yeah. yeah. What he does very skillfully is he shows how um, public health authorities decide to isolate this community around, they impose quarantines very quickly. But then his study is really what happens once the gates to the city are closed and, you know, families are split apart, loved ones are separated. Of course, in those days, pe- people tried to smuggle out letters, but the letters are seized by the, the soldiers. Today, of course, we have WhatsApp so we can communicate <laughs> with people in Wuhan and know exactly what they're feeling.
1: And this idea of what happens when, you know, we're talking about viruses spreading, but we talk about, um, this was interesting, about how d- how do you stop it spreading?
2: Mm. So see, one of the problems with a fast-moving respiratory virus is by the time you know it's okay. here and it's a danger, it's probably already, you know, the horse has probably already bolted. Yeah, uh, And I think we're seeing that in China. By the time the authorities, there was a fatal delay. Uh, it's, having said that, one couldn't imagine a Democratic Western government being able to impose a quarantine on the scale that China has done. I don't think we could do that here. Can you imagine if uh, tomorrow Transport for London said we're suspending all travel on the tube? And guess what? Luton, Gatwick, and Heathrow airports are closed, and you can't hop in your SUV down the M1 because we'll be barricading the roads too. There'd be chaos, it'd be mayhem.
1: One of the things just sort of that I wanted to ask as well is that has gone hand in hand with scary mutating viruses is the search for a cure, mm. the search for a vaccine. How important is this in the narrative?
2: In each of the outbreaks, the big outbreaks we've seen in, in, in the 20th century and the 21st, um, it often does come down to, you know, a brilliant microbiologist, just like in the films, you know, yeah. all these outbreak narratives, who is the one who cracks the puzzle, who thinks outside the box and finds, you know, the viral sequence and then races to make the vaccine. So that's what we're seeing now. We've caught this coronavirus early enough, we've got it sequenced, and now um, institutions all over the globe are developing prototype vaccines that they hope to put into trial before the epidemic's over. Because of course, it's very hard to study and test a vaccine if you don't have an epidemic, if you don't have yeah. cases.
1: So, And do you you think that's likely to happen, that they'll be able to achieve that?
2: Well, what I've read is that the earliest they could get a vaccine into the first stage of clinical clinical trial is um, 16 weeks, four months. So uh, we don't want this to happen. But if the outbreak continues into um, April, then May, I guess it's possible. Yeah.
1: Now I remember sort of cases of bodies being exhumed from 1918 to see if they could, you know, sequence the the virus in some way. Was that the stuff of films, or did anything useful actually come out of that?
2: Normally, a virus won't persist for 100 years if you go back and look for it because it decays very rapidly in tissue. Uh, but if you've been buried in permafrost, um, and they basically what happened is. Um, We identified a a site in Alaska where um, the whole village of indigenous people had been wiped out. And they were buried uh, in a shallow grave on a bluff overlooking a a beach, facing through a lot of like detective work. And, and, um, you know, they they managed to get permission from the villagers to exhume the bodies. And they did retrieve virus from um, actually a female victim who uh, was buried in the permafrost. Um, They also found archival viral material in U.S. Army stores. So soldiers who had died of these weird pneumonias linked to the flu, they preserved their tissue uh, on the slides. And long story short, uh, through combining all these different uh, viral fragments, they managed to reconstruct the whole gene of 1918. So we now know exactly what that virus looked like. They keep it in a cold locker. in Bethesda, Washington, uh, the National Institutes of Health. You can rest assured it's behind (laughs) (laughs) multiple layers of security. Uh, That is like a film, you know, they have eye scanners and all sorts of security checks, um, so nobody can take it out. But that was very, really important because because of that, they were then able to study uh, it in animal models, in rodents, um, and see what made it so virulent. And using that information, they were then able to um, devise vaccines in case the same variant comes along again.
1: So this is a difficult question to ask mm. you because we're at such an early stage. Where do you think this coronavirus will sit in the kind of the pantheon of pandemics, to coin a uh, coin a phrase? Is it going to be one that we look back on like, you know, the Spanish flu, mm. or you know, SARS, or is it going to be you know the new swine
2: flu? I don't think I'm really in the prediction business. Um, I like as a medical historian, I like to offer prescriptions for medical history (laughs) rather than prognostications. I think it's a very dangerous game. Um, It could go, it could go uh, lots of different ways. Um, It's clearly growing. uh, It's clearly spreading. The good news is so far that uh, in the countries where there have been introductions like Japan and Thailand, we haven't seen many uh, second-generation infections, so that's a real worry. But I think it's already going to have a significant place. Um, We're already seeing big effects on the stock market. You know, a lot of uh, companies today, you know, we've seen uh, airlines like British Airways suspending flights. Uh, We've seen companies like McDonald's who have manufacturing in China uh, withdrawing their their labor. So it's going to impact the economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if it doesn't have these health impacts, and each time this happens, we realize again, we learn the lesson again of just how in- interconnected the world is with global air travel. Right? <laughs> I rode in on the tube this morning, and I kicked myself because normally it's empty at this time, but it was super crowded. And I thought, why didn't I bring my face mask? I just would take basic precautions, which are good anyway. You don't want to get colds or flu. You know, carry a hand sanitizer. And if you're going to be, you know, stuck in a closed room with a lot of people, you don't know where they've been, (laughs) maybe wear a face mask. Don't alarm anyone, but just saying.
1: You've been listening to The Know How, the podcast that dissects pressing issues with academics and experts. It was presented by Lindsay Blumel and Glenda Cooper and produced by Atina Dimitrova.
0: For more information on this and our other episodes, please go to our website, www.thenowhowpodcast.com or follow us on Twitter at KnowHowPodcast or on Facebook at The KnowHow Podcast.